Welcome, welcome my friends to the Beggars and Brawlers podcast. This is episode 62, <laughs> recorded Friday the 9th of December 2022. And today I have another preview for you of Rebel of Riddle and Woe, the forthcoming third book in the Tidecaller Chronicles, coming very soon now. Plus, what it was like to be an epic fantasy author discovering I might be writing a romance novel? Alright, so before we get into the juicy romance bit, just a spoiler warning, uh, which I had on the first preview episode as well. If you have not read books one and two of the Tidecaller Chronicles, this will spoil them hard for you. So uh, maybe pause here and go read those or listen to those. They're definitely available in audio from yours truly. Um, links to that in the show notes. Or if you're one of those people who wants to be spoiled, <laughs> read on. But uh, hopefully... You enjoy it either way. Here is chapter two of Rebel of Riddle and Woe. Two. We stay up half the night talking, checking the connections, scanning for other references now that we know what to look for, talking through the implications. We find two more references to a monocle, both in immersion records, not notes, but neither really changes the facts. The holy visions of six monks point to some thing, whatever it is, capable of stopping the floods. A monocle. My initial elation lasts only until I start to think about trying to get it. Isong looks up from the page with the same expression in his eyes. If these hints are here in the text, he says, and Narimes has access to them, then he probably knows about them too, I say, heart suddenly a stone sinking in dark waters. Or if he doesn't, he could figure them out any time. He has a flooding temple full of scholars to put on this. Isong lays a hand on my arm, and I realize I'm tense like I'm going to jump up and hitch the wagon, even though it's the middle of the night. Wait, he says. This is good. This is a way we can stop the floods, but we don't know how to do it. I curse and drop back onto my pallet. Right. The unity of ways, it says. That could mean anything. Isong frowns, the cleft in his chin deepening. Well, there are only so many ways I can think of that would fit. Political, like a uniting of divided peoples. My stomach clenches, like my city, divided by gender. But he's not done. Spiritual, he says, like uniting religions or beliefs. Or craftological, uniting some kind of technologies, making a tool. My gut gets tighter yet. The Dale are the only ones who know craftology. Yaelat, do you think she has it, or is she trying to make it? Is that what she's doing in Saray? His brow furrows, pale eyes staring through me. If she had it, I don't think she would be building the arcs. But Hiana! I take a breath, try to gather my thoughts. The monocle changes everything, if it exists. Hiana was talking about using the floods, that she wanted to prepare for them, to be the one who survived them and controlled the society to come. She even told me about something pre-flood, an inscription she had, that she thought was proof people had done it before, that that's how our society came to be at all. Isong nods, brows still furrowed. There are stories among my people, saying we survived that way too, that it's how we've been able to advance so much faster than the rest of the world. They claim we never lost our material culture in the way others did. But, he shakes his head, if they want the flood to happen, what good would quelling the inundation be? I pick up the papers, staring at my father's writing again, 
an antidote to deluge. I mean, it's power, right? What they want is power. If Yaelot's building giant ships up there, then maybe she doesn't have it. Maybe that's not the right unity of ways. But who knows what this thing can do? What if it can stop the flood for a particular area? Imagine if Narimes could save Saray while the rest of the world drowned and paint himself as some kind of savior. They would worship him. I get angry at the very thought. The fact that he already holds the highest position in our religion makes me furious. I'm not going to let him do it. And I'm not going to let her do it, Isong says, sounding no less determined. But that means we have to get this thing, figure out the unity of ways. I nod. And the fact that Yeolat hasn't got it, or it doesn't seem like she has, because why would she be trying to marry Narimes if she already has this power, the words are just kind of tumbling out of me, is no guarantee the unity isn't craftology. Or someone hasn't already made it in the Deul, or found one and fixed it. Isang looks at the papers again, like he can see through them. We keep and catalogue everything from the old world. There were cities up there, you know, incredible ancient cities, ones we think might have survived the last flood, mountains that were a chain of islands before. It's the other theory of why we got so advanced so fast, or another one, anyway. I frown. So we could, what, go to the Dale and interview craftologists looking for the monocle? I realize I have no idea what it looks like. It wouldn't be that easy, if we could even get in. He shakes his head. And it could just as easily be a unity of political ways, tying all the nations of the world together. My stomach goes cold. Like your people are trying to do. Like Narimes and Yeolad are trying to do, to get power. I shake my head. But that's impossible. At least not if we're right about when the floods are coming. Maybe it doesn't have to be the world, he says, still staring at the chronicles. Maybe just the place you came from. Like Yeolat uniting the Deul houses, or Narimes conquering the witches. But it's not, I say, because neither of them are acting like they're done. Unless they haven't united them the right way. Floods. How are we supposed to know? The silence stretches, and I realize how tired I am. How late it is, and how many late nights I've pulled since we left Iran, trying to find this. Isong picks up the chronicles and starts leafing through them, while I rack my brain for some way, short of uniting my city and conquering the Dale, too. Here, he says, pointing at entry 11. This is the only one saying anything about uniting things, the unity of ways. So, it sounds even more vague now. The unity of ways could be anything. So, your immersion was a powerful experience, right? Would you remember more details from it than you might have told someone recording it? What if this monk is still alive, this Yemla? I suck in a breath. Yemla? He was one of my trainers in the temple. A former overseer turned scholar. He taught language and politics. I know him. Is he still alive? Isong's gaze bores into me. I don't know. A lot of people died in the fight at Narimes' wedding, and then probably more when the people loyal to my father split off and escaped. And Yemla was old, as old as Erte, but strong for all that, one of the scholars who never gave up the physical meditations. I work my jaw. I don't even know if he'd be a loyalist or a traditionalist. Can you find out? I've intentionally kept from trying to contact anyone since I escaped. All I really know of what's happening in Saray is what I've heard from my enemies, from Hiana and the overseers who came to kill me in the arena. But there is a way. Riverpost, I say. I don't know how they're working now that the temple's split, 
but it used to be if you wanted to contact anyone far away, you sent a message by water. I doubt they've closed them down, even with the divisions. Isong nods. He's likely seen them in his travels. We actually passed one a few days ago. A tiny temple perched on the bank of a middling river, like some giant plucked a piece of old Saray and dropped it into the hinterlands. It made me homesick like I haven't been in months. For all that's happened, I still miss the temple. I still believe in it, or what it could be. I think my father did, too. You'll have to be careful how you do it, he says. The messages travel openly, don't they? Kind of. It's like that old game of secret, where people whisper a message to each other down a line. I mean, they're careful to make sure it doesn't get garbled in the same way, but everyone up and downstream hears it and records it, so you always have to be careful what you say. Send things in code if you can. But with the division in the temple now, I can't even imagine. The first thing we'll be figuring out if the monk at the river post is on my side or Narimes's. And then how to find what you want to know without giving it away or giving us away, if they still think we're going by boat. Floods. I flop back onto my pallet, suddenly exhausted. This is good, though. We finally know what to do. We get to the next river post, find out if Yemla's alive, and if he is, we find him and see if he knows more. The immersion is like a dream, or it was for me at least. You see things. Maybe even if he doesn't understand the unity of ways exactly, he can describe it. If he's still alive. I smile. If he's not, then he'll actually be easier to find. I haven't seen him in any of my immersions, but you tend to only see the people who are most important to you in life. Still, the others in my immersion circle will know. The thought makes me miss my father all over again. I've been avoiding the ocean since we left Iran, even though it's occasionally only a few hundred yards distant, because I know the more I visit him there, the less distinct he'll become that he will fade with time like my mother has, and every time I visit them in there, it uses up a little more of what's left, like rubbing a wet finger over a story written in ink, blurring it more every time, until you're just left with the color, but no meaning. If Yemla is dead, hopefully he hasn't been visited enough to blur out his memories. But first things first. We'll start at the river post. With any luck, he's still alive. And on my side, and the monk at the post doesn't figure out who I am. As if he can feel how overwhelming it suddenly is, Isang reaches over and squeezes my hand. We'll figure it out. We'll get this thing, one way or another. We have to, I hold back from saying, or we're all dead. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I had a lot of fun writing this book, but it was difficult in new ways for me. Um, it's, I think, the 10th novel that I've finished. Uh, there are some half-finished ones, but I think this is the 10th one I wrote the end on and went back and worked through. And uh, I had to do a lot of working through on this one because, as I mentioned in the opening, somewhere in the middle of it, I kind of realized this is a romance novel or sort of a romance novel. So you got some you got some hints of sparks there and uh, and probably also saw maybe where one of the main conflicts is coming from in this chapter. But um, the main tension... You know, like we talk about the inciting incident uh, in writing, like the thing that starts off the story of the book. So we've had one of the inciting incidents here, which is them discovering this thing in the Chronicles, um, that there's a way to stop the floods. And the other inciting incident, um, if you are a good reader and you have finished book two before listening to this, you'll know what it is because I, I do this weird thing here where you remember last chapter, the first line says seven days from Duran. 
because we kind of backtracked a second in time um, to show them discovering that thing in the Chronicles. And next chapter, we're going to catch up with where we actually landed, ended the last book. Um, and there is something there that, uh, if you remember it, definitely puts a skew in things. It's the other half of the inciting incident for this. And it's very, very romance focused. <laughs> and I um, knew that I that it was going to cause lots of trouble and they would start the plot in some ways. Um, but I didn't think about when I initially planned that and wrote the end to book two, how it would affect this romance that Alethea has with Isong that we saw in chapter one and see again here and that we saw in the end of Witch of Wealth and Ruin, book two. And I think if I had had only one of those threads, if there was just one love interest, <clears throat> it wouldn't necessarily have been a romance novel. I write a lot of that. But since there were two, are two in this book and they're conflicting, suddenly I was like, oh, wow, a lot of the tension and conflict here, especially because as I talked about um in the last preview, this is an ensemble story, so there's a team, and Alethea is trying to keep it together. But there's also sexual competition going on, which is super interesting, right? And I like to read these stories, but I haven't really written them before. And uh, the stories that I read are never directly about the relationship, which is to say they're not romance novels. They're fantasy novels that have a romantic element where, you know, like they're still trying to save the world or figure out the magic or whatever we're always doing in fantasy. And they're also kissing. Um, in this book, man, at a certain point, I was like, this is on the borderline of being more about kissing than about magic. <laughs> and I do think I ended up on the magic side of things because Alethea makes that choice. But uh, it really pushed me as a writer to write those parts well, because I, you know, they're always kind of on the sideline and I haven't written that many of them. And I do feel like I haven't written them that well when I've done it. And I, of course, want to write my books well. I ended up calling in my friend, Angela Board, who uh, all the books I've read of hers that involve kissing, which I think is probably all of them, do it so well. Uh, and I feel like she knows what she's doing. So I had her read these early chapters and revise them based on her notes. Um, and she said some really insightful things. Um, one of them is that I just need to slow down the burn. And I'm totally guilty of this in, uh, in Beggar's Rebellion, the first draft of it. Ty and Ella, if you've read that series, there's there's two points of view there instead of the one here. And it's a boy and a girl, and they end up getting together, which is not the kind of genders that I have getting together in this series. But all of that aside, um, they got together real early because I sort of thought that the book was pointing towards that. And then in revisions, I scaled it back from they have sex to they kiss to they're just friends to they're kind of friends, I think is where it is now. And I let that burn go slower and it's definitely better for it. But I needed to be told that again. And some of the other things that I learned in working through this book and making the kissy parts work with the magic parts and with my abilities as a prose writer um, is to see love scenes as fight scenes. I have not written many love scenes, and I sort of don't know what I'm doing because I haven't read that many either. But this advice uh, that I've heard a few times is to just see the times when things get physical in a story. Don't see them as different. Just imagine it the same in terms of pacing. Like in a fight scene, I don't give you every move that they do, but I give you enough of those details that you know what's going on and summarize enough to keep it exciting. Yeah, to not be gory, but to give you enough detail that you know what is going on. So not tawdry in this case. 
But it really helped me a lot to think about it that way. I am, as you probably know, quite the planner, <clears throat> but I always leave my fight scenes unplanned and just kind of see what happens. So they have that feeling of spontaneity. And so that's what I did with the couple of uh, love scenes that we've got in this book as well. Um, and I think it worked out well. It was, uh, yeah, just an interesting, interesting experiment for me. Um, the third lesson is that if I'm going to do this more, I need to read it more because I uh, felt like I was probably reinventing the wheel. And I, you know, think there are lots of things to be learned. And basically, I don't think you can write it well unless you've read lots of it uh, or unless you get lucky. <clears throat> but rather than that, I think I might go the X-Files route <laughs> in my series, which is tension forever <laughs> and no resolution. If you remember Fox and Mulder from the X-Files. Tons of tension, ramping up sometimes, almost being a thing, and time after time they get interrupted before anything can happen, right? And I don't think you're reading my books for the kissing points anyway, so maybe I'll just do that and then we can have some of that fun tension without it getting to the point where it takes over the story. I don't think it does in this book, but man, for a little bit, I was not sure. <laughs> so um, we're going to see more of that in the preview chapters to come. I think I'm going to give you... Four more, but we'll probably put two of them together because they're shorter. And I'll blabber afterwards about more things related to the writing of it and my experience of it for those of you super geeks who are interested in knowing such things. But for now, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, the book may be out. There's a link in the show notes to grab it if it is, or maybe it's on pre-order. Um, and of course, a link to the free novella that's set in this world and features um, lots of the characters of this book and the previous books, Thief of Smoke and Sorrow. So if you haven't listened to that one, pick it up. It's totally free. You just have to sign up to my newsletter, which basically just tells you, hey, there's a new podcast out anyway. So yeah, do that. And as always, I hope that this podcast finds you well and in the company of good books till I can bring you another one of mine. Read on. For more information on Levi Jacobs and his books, including the award-winning Tide Collar Chronicles, visit www.levijacobs.com. Or for a free audiobook, only available to podcast listeners, go to www.levijacobs.com slash free. Thanks for listening, and read on.